The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Welcome. We are so grateful to be in studio, and welcome to the Looking Forward Show. This is a our next chapter. It's our next chapter in this show, and I'll explain. My name is Jeff Abramowitz, and I'm so grateful to be here and at the uh, Looking Forward Show. It's We're here on WWDB AM Talk 860, and again, this show has been around for a little bit, so I'm going to give you a little history today on how we got to where we are, and we're also going to talk about where we're going with the show in the future. So the show's been around for a little bit. The Looking Forward show's been here almost five, year, five years. Uh, we were at a different studio at Philly Cam, and I'm going to give them a big shout out because Philly Cam took me in, and they said, um, you got a, you got a great concept. You got a great story. Um, we're going to show you how to really get the message out. And I was like, oh, man. Thank you. And they brought me into a show not knowing anything. I had never been in a radio studio before. And by the time I got done, it was 100 shows later. And we really had it down where we were able to have an impact in our community, in the Philadelphia region and across the country, because the Looking Forward show is the center of where community meets justice. And it's a really neat place because some of the topics and things you're going to hear about over the course of our shows are really what um, what people go through when they're touched by the justice systems and what we really didn't need to know. So we're going to be sharing all of that, a little bit of the story today of myself, and we have an amazing guest here today. Uh, Yinan Baker is here. You're going to hear his story. You're going to hear what motivates him. Um, so I'm grateful to be here. And I, I guess I need to start off the Looking Forward show by giving you a little bit about myself and what motivated me to get started five years ago in launching this project and this show, which is, um, it's been a passion for me. So I was a lawyer in Philadelphia for a little over 20 years. And during that time, I, uh, I moved up the ladder, became successful to become a, a partner in a law firm. I have ha- at a time had a beautiful wife, have an amazing daughter even today, have an amazing daughter, is 29 years old, Rachel. You'll hear about her throughout our show sometimes because I do give a little anecdotes about myself and my family. But uh, I had made some really bad choices uh, about 12 years ago, and those choices handed me a federal indictment. Now, I often say that when you go through the justice system, uh, you have to recognize that you know there, it is all about choices. We make choices every day. Einstein's got a great line. He said, "If you make ten bad choices, ten choices, bad choices a day, you're just not trying hard enough." And it really makes sense because the truth is, we do things and we maybe don't do them so well, and then we do them over, and that's how we do them better. So I made some choices that landed me in a situation where I needed to take responsibility. But I remember the uh, there, there's a time in your life that they say – there's actually two of them. The two most important times are days of your life. Now, the first one everyone says is the day you're born. I agree, man. I think the day you're born, it gets you started. It gets you rolling. But – The second most important day of your life to me is the day that you figure out why you were born. And uh, incredibly, I could tell you down to the second when that happened for me because I stood in a courtroom in Philadelphia in front of family, friends, colleagues, judges, my family. And for the first time in my life, I stood there not as a lawyer, but I stood there as a defendant. So when the judge's gavel struck wood was that defining moment in my life because as I stood 
as I stood in the courtroom that day, two gentlemen came up from behind me. They took my belt off and my tie and they removed my, my wedding band and my wallet and my shoelaces. And they brought me back right into custody and sitting back in a holding cell waiting to figure out what was next. My first time actually in a prison. And I, I needed to to reconcile two things. One, making sure that I knew why this journey happened so it never happened again because I never wanted to get into trouble again. And number two is what was the bigger picture? What was the meaning for me? And I started right then and there. From the very first night, I started writing voraciously and journaling every thought that I had so that I could learn from the experience. And then next came just trying to get involved. I realized when I was in prison that people needed support. They needed to, then they wanted to learn. They wanted math and reading and, and learn how to do career, um, different career opportunities that, that might be coming down their path and training. So, I I really got in this groove when I was away of teaching, and I taught over over sixty five classes while I was away, and everything from public speaking to uh, political science to current events to G, to ESL English as a second language with someone else who really spoke Spanish because I didn't even speak Spanish, and I taught things like. Um, a CDL course, and I had never been in a, a, in a truck before in my life. I had never operated a truck before, but that wasn't the problem for the men that I lived with. It was that they couldn't pass the darn test. Like the reading wasn't good enough or their math wasn't good enough. So I started teaching inside of the walls. And um, during my, my, my time away, I took every opportunity to learn from all the people that were around me. And that meant sitting in on call to prayer with my Muslim friends and um, sitting in the Christian services and, and doing all these crazy things like learning how to change oil on a truck and working in a warehouse and in a, in a uh, kitch, commercial kitchen. So I really I in, embedded myself in the system to learn. And when I left, um, there was one lesson that I needed, one more lesson that I was about to be handed. And I returned to Philadelphia, and it's exactly eight years ago, tomorrow on September 10th, that I returned to Philadelphia and lived in a homeless shelter in Philadelphia and a halfway house. And during that time, I really saw the challenges facing men and women coming home in one of the most challenging areas of our country in North Philadelphia. I lived in the halfway house shelter system and uh, struggled. I struggled to get off my feet. I struggled to find transportation. I struggled to find a good meal to eat. I struggled with all these really basic things and landed my first job teaching GED math for $7 an hour, a few blocks from the shelter. And that was what got me off the ground. After that, I quickly became a director of workforce development at Community Learning Center, which is now Beyond Literacy here in Philadelphia, amazing organization, and then began getting active and really wanting to share my story and my journey. So I became chair of the Pennsylvania Reentry Council uh, that was appointed to by the attorney general in, uh, in the state of Pennsylvania and took a seat on the Pennsylvania Workforce Development Board and started chairing committees for the Philadelphia Reentry Coalition and tried to get involved as much as I could. So after I left, or while this is all happening, things are progressing really fast. So I'm beginning to navigate and figure out like um, how to get a bank account again and get my credit back and, and all those kind of basic things I just didn't know what I was going to do about. So I, I moved from uh, my teaching position and was blessed with getting a job at Jeff's Human Services in Philadelphia. Jeff's also a remarkable organization, 
but uh, began overseeing the criminal justice programs and the reentry programs and was able to launch our Looking Forward reentry program, helping people as they came home and working in Philadelphia at the jail system uh, up on State Road, uh, doing it, overseeing the educational programming that was up there. So it was amazing. Uh, but the same day I got a call from Jeff's uh, to become an executive director there, I received a phone call from the Coalition on Adult Basic Education, which was at the time um, the and is the advocacy arm for adult educators in our country. And they said, Jeff, we're, we're missing something. We're missing the voice of those people, those educators that are incarcerated and working with incarcerated populations. Can you help us? And, and started the Prison Literacy Committee across the country, and that's been just blooming with good work. Um, and thank you to Coape for giving me that opportunity. And it's been a, it's just a crazy journey for me. I've been speaking around the country for the last, um, the last five years. I've been having just these rem- remarkable experiences of meeting people at all different levels. And in December, I had the ultimate, uh, the ultimate for me, which was to become the CEO of a national nonprofit. On um, in December first of twenty twenty two, I was asked and took over the reins as the CEO of the PD Green program. So let's start with PD Green and who he is. PD Green historically he was a disc jockey in Washington D.C. He's kind of the Howard Stern of his day, and it's so ironic that I'm sitting in a radio studio because I could just imagine what PD Green would be saying. Talk to me. He had this great line when he interviewed guests. He said, "Talk to me. Talk to me." And if you actually Google PD Green. And uh, talk to me. There's a movie about his story out there and just remarkable what he did and some great stories about life inside of prison and how he navigated his way, his way home. So I became the CEO of the PD Green program. And I got to tell you, I've been flying high um, since I took this job. So the PD Green program is just this remarkable organization that uh, really supports the academic goals of those behind prison walls and beyond. And it works to get people academically smarter and academically meaning math, reading, uh, digital literacy, financial literacy, you name it. If we can help people get smarter, then that's the ultimate goal. But we do it in a crazy way. Here's how we do it. We use college students from around the country and volunteers, and we train them and skill them and bring them inside of the prisons and jails and to work one-on-one with individuals and then follow them as they come home and continue to work with them on the outside. And we've, uh, we've touched over 16,000 students uh, during our, since our founding in 2008 over 7,285 volunteer placements, and we tutor at over 120 sites across the country. We are building, we are growing, we are passionate, but that's not all. Because helping someone get smarter is part of the game. The other part of the game is recognizing that there's another piece to this, and that's that we're working with college students. And we're working with people that maybe have never had an impact in the justice system. And what's that, what that's led to is culture change. That's how you change culture. You get young people involved and you get them to see the humanity or inhumanity of a system. And then they see it differently. They wear different glasses. So super, super excited about bringing this show um, to our community and uh, to WWDB. We're looking forward to having a number of guests on over our years. We've had over 250 guests, including um Uh, John Fetterman and local celebrities and people from a national voice. So you're going to see everything here and you're going to get to hear from a great story today. I just want to, before we take a break, I do want to just tell you the format of the show just so you have some idea what to expect. 
So the first thing I do is I like to do a ketchup. So you just got ketchup from me. You can put it on a burger or wherever you want to put it, but we're catching up, uh, telling you a little bit about what's going on and what the show's about, what's on my radar screen for the week, where I've been. So you got that part. The second part is some rock star guests. And you're going to hear from um, Ian and Baker today. And I got to tell you, I've only known him for a short period of time, but um, you're going to, you're just going to be unbelievably impressed by his story and his journey and his next chapter, which he's writing as we sit in the studio today. So you're going to hear from Yin in a minute. And then after that, um, I believe that every show should have a call to action, which is what should you be doing after the show? What is it that you should – where should you be going? Where should you be talking to? What program should you be looking at? Like we're going to give it to you. And then also I want everyone out there to know if you want to be a guest on the Looking Forward Show, it's super easy to reach us. Go to lookingforwardshow at gmail.com and send us an email. If you have a nonprofit, if you have a story you want to tell, if you want to be a sponsor of the show, they're all open right now. So, you know, we want you really simple. Go on to lookingforwardshow at gmail.com. Send us a note and we'll we'll get you on and uh, we'll, we'll get to share some of the awesome work that you're doing. So we're going to, I talked enough. I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, um, Yin and Baker is going to be joining me for our very first guest. And you're going to hear a story that's just absolutely amazing. So we'll be right back. You're listening to WWDB AM Talk 860. And this is the Looking Forward Show. This is WWDB AM Talk 860, the Looking Forward Show. This program is being sponsored in part by the PD Green Program. The PD Green Program supports the academic goals of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people through high-quality volunteer tutoring programs. The PD Green Program has touched more than 16,000 students, 7,285 volunteer placements, and are located in over 120 sites across the country. To learn more about the PD Green Program, you can go to pdpetygreneprogram.org. And now, back to our host, Jeff Abramowitz. Welcome back. Welcome back. You're listening to WWDB AM Talk 860, the Looking Forward Show, our first, our maiden voyage. This is it. And I am thrilled and could not think of a better guest to really tell you uh, what this show is all about than, um, than Yinin Baker. Yinin, how are you, bud? I'm splendid, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. Excited. Be here. Well, we are so looking forward to you being in studio today and sharing your story. And I, I really, we've only met, what, two weeks ago, a few weeks ago? Yeah, about two weeks, you could say. We did. And, and when we first met, the first thing I thought was going through my head was, man, he, he's got to get his story out there. He's got, and we, we connected and you were, um, you came to see me at one of the speaking engagements I was at recently up in North Jersey. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm just so impressed by your story. So I, I think we got to start really at the ground level. So um, who is Yenin Baker? Okay. So I'm Yenin Baker. I'm from Trenton, New Jersey. I grew up um, in a drug-infested, violent neighborhood along with my two sisters. Uh, my parents are immigrants from Liberia. And I went to Catholic school from first grade to eighth grade. Um, my parents were strict. Uh, you know, we got out of school at 2.30 p.m. And they wanted us home by... 2.45. If we weren't home by 2.45... <laughs> you felt the shoe. Yes, definitely. <laughs> we, got, we got butt whippings, and we got plenty of those. So my whole life took a turn when my dad moved back to Liberia. Uh, I started to get in trouble once my dad left. Uh, one night, my two sisters were doing their homework at the kitchen table. 
And I came in front of him and stood. And I pulled out a plastic sandwich bag with crushed aspirins in powdered form. And I pulled out a stack of $1 bills with a $20 bill on the top. And I said, I'm going to be a drug dealer. And they started laughing. Eventually, I became that drug dealer. So once my dad left, I started to get in a lot of trouble. By sixth grade, uh, I was already on probation. By the end of eighth grade, I seen my first murder. Ninth grade, I played basketball for Trenton High, and uh, I was great at playing basketball. But, you know, due to all the temptation at school, and when I say temptation, uh, there was a lot of, you know, uh, my peers that would come to school with fancy clothes. And, you know, at that time, I had about maybe four outfits to my name. So there was a lot of temptation in my neighborhood. You know, a lot of guys, um, you know, selling drugs and things like that. So eventually, you know, I fell victim to the streets and I started selling drugs my freshman year. And, you know, that led to me, you know, disrespecting my mom, you know, getting in a lot of trouble and just, uh, you know, selling drugs. So I say about a year later, I was selling drugs in a um, projects around the corner from me called Donnelly Homes. And I got robbed. A guy came and smashed me in the face with a 40-ounce bottle. And a 40-ounce bottle is a, a big alcohol bottle. Uh, it's beer, and it's an alcohol bottle. And he smashed me in the face, and the whole bottle sm- sh- shattered on my face. And I fell down for about five seconds, so the guy took my uh, money and drugs. And I got up. Um, you know, at this time I was in pain, but I wasn't worrying about the pain. I was worrying about the, the, the lie that I was going to have to tell my mom, because what am I doing in the projects at, you know, three something Mm. in the morning? (laughs) So, you know, I'm supposed to be home, sleep, getting ready for school in the morning. You're about to get a whooping. You know that, don't you? (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, in the morning I had to tell my mom what happened and, um, you know, she didn't buy my story. But moving on, you know, I started to um, get in more trouble. So my mom and dad, you know, came up with an uh, immaculate plan to send me to Liberia. And she told me that I would go to Liberia for a week and I would come back, you know, with my dad. So I said, yes, I'll go. And basically, when I got to Liberia, the first day I asked my dad, where's the round trip ticket? And he said... What round trip ticket? You're not going nowhere. <laughs> oh, there you go. So, so was, how impactful was that trip back? So definitely unexpected, right? You weren't you weren't expecting it, but you ended up coming back to to the U.S. Exactly. I so I stayed a year. Um, I did my tenth grade year in Liberia, and when I came back, you know, my first day back, uh, and before um, no, I move on. I just want to say that that was the the best gift my parents ever gave me. Uh, and, and not not even uh, just my parents, anyone going to, you know, Africa for the first time. That was the best gift, you mm. know, ever. Uh, and it, it opened my li- uh, my eyes, you know, to to the world. And, um, you know, it was a beautiful place, beautiful people. So I just wanted to say that. But uh, my first day back, 
I started selling drugs. Wow. And, uh, you know, I got into more trouble. By 17, I had my first shootout. And, you know, this shootout, I became fearless. I used to get bullied. And, um, you know, once I had this shootout, I had an epiphany that no one would ever bully me again. Anyone mess with me, my family or friends, they're going to get dealt with. And that's the mentality that I had. You know, this, this, I had a gangster mentality after this shootout. What was it that broke the camel's back? Like what you started your, your justice journey shortly after that, when you came home, you're on the streets, you're selling, um, you get some real hot water Mm -hmm. that puts you away for a bit, right? Yes. Yeah. So where did you land and, and what was that experience like? Um, so I was arrested for, uh, drug trafficking, um, drug trafficking, uh, you know, kilograms of cocaine from California to New Jersey. And I was arrested by the FBI February 24th, 2010 at uh, Philadelphia International uh, Airport. And, you know, to the point, I ended up getting sentenced to 15 years in federal prison. And uh, I was taken to Philadelphia Federal Detention Center in in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, I was sentenced to 15 years. Wow. That's a lot of time. I so I was sentenced to five and and I, I just I had a hard time with time, like understanding how long that is. But think of fifteen birthdays. You know, think of your kids, you know, going one years old, they're coming out, you're coming out and they're driving, you know, just that whole time perspective. Um then you ended up in a place called Otisville. And and what's even funnier too, I, well ironic is I think we um I'm not sure when were you at um at F D C Philly? Uh so February 24th, I came to um, Philadelphia FDC. Yeah. And uh, I left from there maybe uh, March of 2000, 2011. So you go, um, you get to a federal facility. Kind of, can you tell us, like, what is it? So obviously, you, there's a lot more to your story because a lot's happened since right. you got inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell us, like, you, you go through the journey. What happens while you're inside? When does that change start? Okay, so the first thing, the first uh, culture shock is when I got to FDC, I was given um, used uh, uniform, inmate uniforms, and I was given some used uh, underwear, used boxers. So that was the first welcome to prison. (laughs) There you go. You know? (laughs) So I must say that. It's like there's not a prison tailor that's like giving you all the clothes. It's like they give you what you you get what you get. I remember when I first went in, there was a jumpsuit that must have been for like somebody somebody was 400 pounds. And it was so big, I felt like I was wearing a clown orange jumpsuit when I went inside. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's the first real awakening. Right. And that, that, that breaks you down. You know, you like use boxes. Are you serious? And um, it it was a, you know, humiliating, humbling experience. So moving on, um, you know, uh, the, the whole situation was, um, it was a very depressing situation. But, you know, I was um, a billion percent mentally strong. You know, I was, um, you know, built for it. And when I say that, uh, I, don't get me wrong, I went through my ups and downs of, uh, because it's a, it's a inhumane, you know, situation and experience. So I went through, um, you know, just 
trying to fight my case. Uh, basically, lawyers, um, you know, getting over on me. I had a paid lawyer, and uh, you know, once once he got paid, <clears throat> he basically, you know, um, he wasn't nowhere to be found. And uh, you know, I just want to mention this that you don't know until you get into the system how these professional, you know, legitimate uh, federal lawyers, how they take advantage of, uh, you know, inmates. And I went through that and I experienced, you know, being taken advantage of. And I, you know, basically fought um, fought the, the lawyer, uh, you know, mm. legit, you know, legit, le- legitly, excuse me, <laughs> legitly. And I, you know, um, told him I would, you know, report him to the uh, the Bar of, so- of Association if he didn't, you know, uh, represent me the way he was supposed to. And, um, you know, with that letter, he finally, you know, gave me some money back on my uh, on my case. And then I was a- appointed a um, another lawyer. So yeah. I went through that. You don't often have like in the justice system, it's not like you can afford the top notch lawyers to really defend you. And sometimes, you know, part of it is is accepting the lawyer that's being given to you if you can't afford a lawyer. So you at some point you had it um there had to be this notion going through your head that I'm just gonna accept responsibility for this, whatever it is, and begin to move on. When does that happen in the justice in your in your justice journey? Like when is that awakening where you say, "Man, I got I got to do this. I oh. got to change." So, sentencing day was um, one of the best days of my life because uh, I say that because uh, one, you know, the system it couldn't it couldn't break me. It couldn't break my soul. Second of all, um, you know, I had an epiphany to uh, basically. I told myself and I promised myself I would never, ever do anything illegal again. And I told myself I have 15 years to get my act together. And I have 15 years to work on all my weaknesses and flaws. And I have 15 years to work on my plan to come home, you know, to be a great man, come home to, you know, make an impact on the world, come home to uh, try to stop as many youth and adults from going down the path that I went. And, you know, I was excited to, to you know, uh, work on this plan. So your plan inside, it had to have some pieces to it. So one was the, the strong, mentally strong piece of working, working mentally, keeping yourself mentally sharp. But you took it a step further because education became a really important thing for you while you were away. And I'm curious, like, what was that? Um, what was that like? What classes were you able to take? Like, what did you d- decide to do from an educational standpoint to better yourself? So uh, another thing, I was excited um, that I had 15 years, and that meant I had 15 years to educate myself, and I was excited about that. So I started uh, taking college courses that I was paying out of pocket myself, and this this college I was doing correspondent courses with. Ashworth uh, College and there in um, Norcross, North Georgia. So for four years, I, I um, worked on my associate's degree. Uh, it was at your own pace. And, you know, I took, I, I was majoring in psychology. So throughout the four years that I was taking, um, you know, the, the courses, the correspondent courses at Ashworth, I was uh, also self-educating myself, just trying to you know, um, I, I took so many programs. I took uh, parenting programs. I took, um, you know, self-development programs. 
I took uh, real estate programs, uh, you know, fitness training programs, anything that would, you know, help help me become a better per- person within and a better person, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurially. And, um, you know, I just took advantage of... You did, man. So I you sent me your resume so I could take a look at it <laughs> for some other reasons as well, helping you look for another job or for some opportunities, some job opportunities. But uh, when I saw it, you, had a, you have like 15 or 20 credentials on there, certificates that you got from classes that you took inside. Mm-hmm. Um, going through... Uh, going through those classes is super important because they kind of help get you driven for and prepared for when you come home. But the one thing that surprises me is the journey on in college and getting your associate's degree because so few people, especially so for those that don't know, July 1st, the Pell Grant window opened back up mm-hmm. for men and women that are um, behind the walls of our prisons and jails. And, and you didn't have that opportunity. You're paying for out of your pocket because mm-hmm. there wasn't Pell opportunity at the time. But taking a college class, that's got to be rocket hard. Like I remember having to type some papers out for people when I was inside. And it's not like they gave us type. They gave us a typewriter, but they didn't give us the ribbons, right? Because they were the old fashioned ones right. and the <laughs> correction tape, right? And then I remember sometimes I'd type and the, the wheel, the pinwheel that you used to have, it'd have a T that was broken or an I or an S and we'd have to go back and you have to like go back and edit it all by hand or retype it all. So, so can you tell us a little about like how hard was it to get your associate's degree inside? Okay, so just to be correct, I didn't uh, finish college. Uh, I stopped, and the reason why I stopped, uh, you know, pursuing my uh, associate's degree was I had an epiphany, and I was like, you know what, I'm reading a lot of uh, books, and most of most of this information. I won't use when I, you know, get out into society. So I said, you know what? The time that I'm reading all these books and this information won't be useful out in the world, I could be, you know, use, uh, reading books that are more productive and that can help me in business. And I said, you know what? Let me self-educate myself more on business. And I stopped taking my, um, you know, uh, associate's uh, degree, uh, correspondent course, and I started focusing more on business and self-educating myself. I love it. I love it. So inside, um, you go through the journey, you go through the steps. How is it? When are you released? When do you come home? Okay. So uh, I'm released uh, October 23rd, 2020. So I had two um, appeals in and I got released during the COVID uh, pandemic. And the reason why I got released was most of it was because of the the COVID pandemic. I was at Lompoc, California. And at this time during the the COVID pandemic, we had the most cases in the whole federal prison system at the time. So I seen the opportunity. I had just finished the uh, the RDAP drug program and I had just got uh, a year taken off my sentence. And uh, just for the record, I did about over 40, uh, you know, uh, certificates, but I can only find 20 something <laughs> at the time. So, so, um, you know, I just finished the, um, RDAP program and I took advantage of this opportunity and I had a, a dream and a vision to get out of prison early because I got out of prison three years before my, um, you know, original uh, release date. And there were some super lawyers that said my case was weak and, you know, they wouldn't touch it, you know, with a 10 feet pole, but I had, you know, faith in myself that I can, uh, you know, 
be released before uh, you know 2023. So I'm gonna t- so tell everybody um, the RDEP program is a drug program that the federal prison system has that you have to take if you have a drug offense. You have to take the class in order to actually be released mm-hmm. and followed up. So um, it hasn't been that long. You've been home. So kind of how's it going? So um, you know, it's it's been a rough journey. However, like I said, you know, in the beginning. I'm a billion percent mentally, um, you know, powerful. So I've been able to, you know, dodge these hurdles and circumvent these hurdles that that have come my way. So, um, you know, when I first came home, um, I had about two jobs that I didn't, um, you know, uh, I didn't like. So I quit. I end up uh, starting to work at Planet Fitness at a, as a fitness trainer and uh you know, they just wasn't paying me enough. So I started working at Amazon uh, January uh, 20th, 2022. And I was there at Amazon, you know, and Amazon's a, um, you know, hard, hard labor job. And honestly, I hated it. However, what I can say is uh, Amazon really made me stronger. You know, um, there were some times, uh, peak season, you would, I would have to get up at, uh, let's say, maybe five o'clock. And, you know, that really conditioned me, you know, to to really be up early in the morning. And it just, you know, made me a, a hard, hard, more hardworking person. So so you got so I, I know you had some dust, but you've recently landed a, a pretty cool job mm-hmm. um, that uh, why don't you tell us about it? Oh, OK, so, um, you know, the reason how I got employed at New Jersey Reentry Corporation was from former Governor Jim McGreevy. And uh, the reason, you know, how that came about was because of my speech that I did at a Trenton High, Trenton Central High Male Empowerment Summit. Um, I basically had a meeting with um, the CEO of Mercer Street Friends, uh, Bernie Flint, and I told him my story. And he said, man, you have a powerful story. I'm going to introduce you to uh, Governor Jim McGreevy. He, you know, has a heart for, you know, uh, returning citizens. And we were introduced to each other. And uh, we finally met at this International Peace Torch Gala in May. And he asked me, um, you know, did I want to, you know, uh, work for his New Jersey Reentry Corporation? I said, yes, I definitely wouldn't uh, (laughs) turn down this opportunity. So uh, I got hired and I started, um, uh, say, last last week. Yeah, about a week ago. Mm -hmm. So the and so. Uh, big shout out to, Jeff, to Governor Jim McGreevy. He's Definitely. this amazing guy. Absolutely. They're doing some great work in North Jersey, and um, he's a personal friend. We've been working together. I'm trying to, to shake it up in um, in North Jersey and give people some skills so that they can get back on their feet and get the, get those job opportunities. We're gonna we're gonna take a quick break because when when we um, when we get back, we're really gonna dive into some of the challenges that you faced and what people should know about the journey coming home. So you're listening to WWDB AM Talk Eight Sixty and the Looking Forward Show, and we're gonna be right back. This is WWDB AM Talk Eight Sixty, the Looking Forward Show. 
This program is being sponsored in part by the PD Green Program. The PD Green Program supports the academic goals of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people through high-quality volunteer tutoring programs. The PD Green Program has touched more than 16,000 students, 7,285 volunteer placements, and are located in over 120 sites across the country. To learn more about the PD Green Program, you can go to pdpetygreene program.org. And now, back to our host, Jeff Abramowitz. We are back. We are back and welcome. This is WWDB AM Talk 860, and you're with the Looking Forward Show. I'm Jeff Abramowitz, your host, and I'm here today with Ian and Baker, our maiden voyage. Our, and this show is really about our next chapters. It's the next chapter for the Looking Forward Show. Being here at WWDB, we're really excited about that. And next chapters for people that are going through our justice system and understanding it all better. Uh, Ian, and thank you so much for spending some time with us uh, today. I really appreciate it. I, I guess I, there's so many things. I want to talk to you about and I, I want you to be able to share, but so much has happened to you. Um, you are the CEO of Philanthro- the Philanthropy Group and also you're a published author now with uh, tax lien certificates that you've published, uh, which people can get on, on Amazon. And you also have some great partnerships, including a, a partnership with Breakbeat Code, um, Breakbeat Code with Google, mm-hmm. which I, is a mouthful. So we'll, we're going to talk about all of those things, but I think we, we really need to kind of tie in a little bit. We know your journey and we know that um, you really are probably, um, gosh, so many young people today are going through and walking in your shoes today and you've made it through on the other side. You've come home and now you're out there talking about it. You're sharing your journey. You're sharing your story. And that is so, so impactful, not only to young people, but everybody listening uh, to, to you and to what drove you. I guess I, I want to dig a little bit into a few things. And the first is, what was that triggering moment? Like, if we could just find that triggering moment for other people that just said, uh, that's enough. Like, I got to turn my life around. Can you pinpoint for me, like, that moment in time where, like, for me, it was sitting in a holding cell naked after I got brought in and was in, uh, taken from the courtroom. Like, I remember that moment for me was just, God, it was so impactful. I just kind of was beyond myself. What was it for you? When was that triggering point? So my mom came to see me a week before I got sentenced. And I had to, you know, be the bearer of bad news and tell my mom that I was about to plea out to 15 years. So when I, um, you know, gave the bad news to my mom and told her that I was about to plea out to 15 years, this day was one of the worst days of my life. My mom cried when I told her, you know, that I... I was about to plea out to 15 years. And, you know, even now, you know, I'm emotional. It, it, it almost brings tears to my eyes when I think about that, that that moment. So, you know, my mom cried and there was nothing I could do. <laughs> I was about to uh, go down this uh, 15-year journey and I had, you know, an epiphany like, man, I'm never, ever going to break my mom's heart again. And I, I never, ever want to, you know, have this feeling that I had that day. So Yeah, that's kind of, I, I think it's the hardest thing. I always I always say that the sentence that I imposed upon myself uh, was uh, far harsher than any sentence a judge could give me. Like he could give me time away, but what I live with, what I, my actions uh, every day, 
all day long. I live with the consequences of them. And, and that's kind of mindful, um, keeps me mindful of my journey and my purpose and why I went through this, my big why. There are so many people that return home every year. In the United States, we are first by, by far the most incarcerated country in the world. But about 600,000 people come back from prison and jail every year back to the community. And I'm curious, like from your perspective, number one, what were what was the hardest thing about coming home? And number two, what advice would you give those individuals that are that are coming home and that are kind of wearing your shoes? So the hardest thing coming home uh was, well, for one, I came home in the pandemic. <laughs> so I was confined you know, for uh, over a decade. Then I come home, I'm still confined because, you know, re- you really couldn't go anywhere because of the pandemic. But the most hardest thing that I went through was my background, my felonies. Like I went, my first job I went to go apply at was Giant Supermarket. The interview went well. Soon I got to the last question, uh, the interviewer asked me, um, you know, about my background, and I told her, and, you know, within 10 seconds, she said, you know what, uh, we'll be getting back with you, um, you know. <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy, it was another guy in, uh, in the interview, he didn't, he's, he, he walked me out, but he didn't walk me back downstairs, and it was a maze, you know, to get to where we were at, and he was so, you know, um, you know disrespectful and rude, that I had to find my way back down. And even one of the um, the employers uh, said, wow, he didn't walk you back down? Uh, and I said, yeah. So, you know, that was motivation, but that was an example of, you know, some of the uh, things that I went through, my background. So uh, another, another thing I had, uh, like I said, I was a fitness trainer, and I went to, um, you know, try to get a job at a gym in Princeton. They had... Um, like a three-interview process. They said if you pass the second interview, you got the job. So I passed the second interview with flying colors. So I wanted to be transparent because I am a transparent, you know, type of guy. And I told the, um, you know, the, the training manager that, hey, I wanted to tell you something, you know. Um, I have a background, this and that. So they said, oh, no, you know, we hired people before and, um, you know, uh, it's okay. And... I end up calling them about two or three times and they gave me the runaround. And because of, you know, me being transparent, I wouldn't have it no other way. I didn't get that job as well either. Yeah. So that's one of the big challenges I think we face um, for people that are coming home is the reality that to, to give it, to divulge and be transparent or not. And every single person I work with, you know, I, I try to persuade them that to be transparent and open and honest is the most important thing, like being able to tell your story. And they're always like, well, they never asked me the question. You know, they never asked what I, where I've been the last five years or last two years. And the thing I want that to impress upon people is that, you know, it, if you're not transparent and open, then it's kind of like you're playing hide the ball. Right. And that's not good either because, you know, the, if you're successful in that company and you move up the ladder, at some point in time, gonna someone's going to ask that question, uh, you know, where have you been? Or it's going to, somebody's going to Google you, right. whatever exactly. it is. And you just need to be open. Exactly. And I, I do believe employers are starting to open the door a little bit wider when it comes to working with people that ha- have a, a justice background or have a criminal background. But I think we need to go even further. And men and women coming home, my advice is learn how to tell your story. 
you know, learn how to really meaningfully tell your story. And you've been coaching people since you've been home on all this. And how's that been going? Uh, it's been going well. Um, you know, first of all, to answer that other question you asked me, um, you know, what would I tell, you know, people that's just coming home? I would tell them, uh, first of all, have no regrets. Tell your story. Be transparent, right, uh, about your background. Second of all, to save you time, from my experience, Amazon hires uh, anyone. They don't, they don't, you know, basically discriminate, um, you know, on, on um, backgrounds. Of, but I want, I want to say this. I'm not 100% sure if they, you know, uh, take, uh, like, uh, people that have, like, a, a homicide uh, felony or yeah, I think, like that. and I think a lot of employers, and 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 rightfully so, there are some jobs that are out there that are jobs that may be hard, you know, that may pose a risk for somebody coming home mm-hmm. or a violation of maybe probation or parole that you have. For example, um, one of the big things we hear, and probably the hardest placements that can be made, are those that have had a sexual offense in their history, and those people that come home, you know, probably not wise putting them in a school because they could violate themselves and right. it could be in a danger to other people. I kind of get all of that. I do think that more and more people, more and more companies are are kind of opening the door to the reality that there are, look, there are somewhere between 70 and 100 million people in our country that have a criminal record, right? So imagine not employing 70 to 100 million people simply because of their past. The, the real opportunity here is to kind of get people to tell their story and then let employers judge on it individual basis, you know, what is, um, whether it's appropriate for their company to hire somebody with a criminal background. And I can't and won't argue that part. Mm-hmm. I don't think everyone that has a criminal background is right for every job. And that just makes good sense. But we do need to make opportunity available. I remember I saw a story not long ago about a large company. I won't give the name, but a large company that was out there and they put a big ad out. We're reentry friendly. We're looking for people that are justice involved or justice impacted. And all these people People applied. I'm talking thousands of people applied and push came to shove and they didn't hire a single person from that pool. Mm. So if you're going to do it, then you need to stand up and, and understand that it's there's some, th- some work to it, right? right? Like you have to understand the challenges. For example, a parole officer may call and say – did, um, you know, is Yenin at work today, right? They want to check. That's part of their job. But breaking down some of those silos is super, super important. What was the number one biggest challenge you had coming home? Um, the biggest challenge, um, I like I, I could, I would have to say my my background, my yeah. my, my the felonies on my record, um, you know, which is which was drug charges, um, and that was the biggest hurdle because it was it was it was uh, haunting me. Yeah, so I got to tell you, honestly, for me, it wasn't my background as much. Like, I was going to be open about it. So wherever I went, I was transparent. I was out there. I was speaking. I was talking to people. Actually, uh, for me, it was actually forgiving myself. Like, I was okay. Um, I did my time. I came home. But I still carried with me the guilt um, that I, I had hurt other people financially, that that was part of my crime. Like, I had to forgive myself. Um, Did you ever come to that point where you forgave yourself? Yeah, I did that when I was in prison, you know. (laughs) I definitely uh, forgave myself, and that's, you know, um, why I was able to, um, you know, just have peace while I was in prison. 
I love it. So one of the things I, I want to kind of, we, we got a little bit of time left, but I want to talk to you about the advice. Uh, you you speak now everywhere, like you're all over the place speaking, which is kind of just so remarkable, um, sharing your story to young people and trying to, um, to get them to understand uh, the journey and mm-hmm. kind of short circuit it, right? right. <laughs> and you don't want to walk in my shoes, right? But if you are talking to young people or people that maybe are on the street now mm-hmm. that are struggling, that are they're doing drugs or doing other things, maybe that are breaking the law, um, what kind of advice would you give to them? Um, so I would tell them uh, it takes, you know, one second for your life to, um, you know, turn around and uh, you'll be, you know, in hell. And um, what I mean by that is, you know, you have to basically have self-control. You know, that's, that's, that's one of the first things you have to have because if you don't have self-control, um, you're a ticking time bomb that could really put yourself in a position where you could throw your whole life away. And, you know, I'm an example, right? So um, I would just tell people, you know, crime doesn't pay. Uh, Basically, do the right thing. There are plenty of opportunities out in the world, you know. However, you know, they're not um, as prevalent in the underserved communities. But if you just continue to seek, you know, you will find it. It's going to, you know, it's going to take... A lot of, you know, uh, persistence, but you have to, you know, give yourself an opportunity because, as like I said, crime doesn't pay. And I'm, I'm, I'm a true example. I don't want anyone to ever go down the path that I went and the journey that I went through. So I would just tell them um, just, you know, be able to uh, live a legit life because it's go. not worth it. I love it. It's also not going to happen overnight, right? The reality is you didn't come home and overnight everything changed. It really takes some time. It takes some time. And, you know, I always I, I always say you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? Because you, you just it takes every day. So when people come home, I often just tell them, just get one victory a day under your belt. And it can be little. Get your driver's license. Go get a social security card. You know, get a, go treat yourself to a good meal. Um, I always live by the saying that, you know, the worst day, my worst day on the outside is better than my best day on the inside. And really it's super true, but understanding just it's your opportunity now to start all over. I came home, I started conquering some things that I've been struggling with. For example, I was afraid, I was afraid of heights. So I started running the Ben Franklin Bridge in the morning to get exercise. And um, yeah, you want to talk about getting over a fear of heights? Right. You just run the Ben Franklin Bridge every morning and man, you're going you're gonna to get that fear of heights goes away pretty <laughs> darn quick. Um, but little things that I just didn't really, uh, I, I just appreciated, you know, going for long walks and seeing nature, trying to stay fit, um, really appreciating your family and the people that are around you. I'm going to tell you a quick story mm-hmm. and I want the audience to know. I did five years. Uh, I was sentenced to five years. I came home and, uh, you know, reconnecting with family was really hard. But I have this amazing daughter who I mentioned earlier. And one of the things, uh, the best things that's happened to me in the eight years I came home was it was Father's Day right after I came off of supervised release, which is probation or parole in the federal system. And I, I just got done getting off my ankle monitor and my daughter, it was Father's Day. She got me in the car and she said, Dad, I'm taking you for my present. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, get in the car. So I got in the car and I'm like, you sure this isn't a punishment? And she's like, no, 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 not a punishment. And we drove back to the suburbs of Philadelphia where her high school was. And she said, get out. And I'm like, are you sure, man? You sure this isn't a punishment? She's get out of the car. 
and I got out of the car and she got out of the car and she went around to the back of the car and she pulled out from the trunk uh, her cap and gown from high school and the award she got at high school graduation. And I was away when she graduated from high school. So I, I didn't have the opportunity to attend her graduation, but we went out to the 50-yard line that day. We took some pictures and we talked about, I talked about my journey and, and she talked about hers and we kind of reconnected. Now, I have to be honest, being at her actual graduation would have been an amazing thing, but that particular day was just priceless. Right. It was just priceless. And we have to remember that, you know, we can't always turn the hands of the clock back, but that doesn't mean we can't reconnect with our family exactly. and start back, start over again, start that next chapter as you've done. Um, people are going to want to know, like when you leave the show, hopefully we're going to have this huge, gigantic audience out there that's going to be tuning in left and right. And they're going to want to know like, Ian and Baker, you know, come and talk to us. You know, we want to, to hear more of your story. How can people reach you? Uh, they can reach me on um, Instagram, Visionary Philanthropy Group, and um, also Facebook, Visionary Philanthropy Group on Facebook. Love it. And my email address is Visionary Philanthropy Group at gmail.com. Awesome. Great work. Man, you're, you're, you're out there. You're sharing your story. Go ahead. And uh, I just want to, you know, let the audience know that uh, I'm a motivational speaker. Um, I have my nonprofit, which is named Visionary Philanthropy Group, INC. I work with at-risk youth, uh, reentry, and the underserved communities. So my passion is to, you know, uh, bring as many opportunities into the underserved communities as possible. And I do a lot of tech shopping and that's something I made up. And what what tech shopping is, I go to uh, tech events and basically I, uh, you know, ask uh, tech executives or, um, you know, other uh, tech decision makers, how can my nonprofit partner, you know, with your um, organization to, you know, bring these tech and STEM opportunities to the underserved communities. And I have right. a uh, partnership with, uh, you know, Google Break Be Code, uh, the founder of Break Be Code, Richard Ashe, is my partner. And um, he's on my board as well. Awesome. And, you know, I've basically been doing some uh, great things. Uh, we just had a July 22nd event uh, that just passed. And uh, Richard uh, came down to Trenton and we had a great time and, um, it was amazing. Awesome. Yin and Baker, thank you so much for joining us today. Motivational speaker, community leader, CEO of Philanthropy Group. Um, just great to have you and share your story. And thanks for being on our pilot show. We're almost out of time, but before we lead off, I just want to mention this, that if you want to be a guest on the Looking Forward Show, it's super simple. Uh, just send us an email at lookingforwardshow at gmail.com. If you have a story to tell, if you've been justice impacted, if you really want to uh, be a sponsor of the show, we got people calling now that want to sponsor and jump on the bandwagon. We, we'd love to have you. You can also check us out on the Looking Forward YouTube channel because our show is on there. Super simple to get on. Just check it out. We're really excited and want to thank, give a big shout out out to WWDB for allowing us this venue and coming on. We're hoping that we're going to have another 100 shows plus uh, through this station at um, WWDB AM Talk 860 and the Looking Forward Show. So please stay on touch on in touch with us there. 
And just remember, the Looking Forward Show is really a place where we're the, at the intersection of justice and community, and we want to hear your stories. We want to hear from the community about how things are working, and I want to give a big shout-out to Matt today for running our board. Matt, thank you. Uh, you're listening to WWDB AM Talk 860, the Looking Forward Show. Thank you, We'll everyone. see you soon. You've been listening to WWDB AM Talk 860 and the Looking Forward Show. This program has been sponsored in part by the PD Green Program. The PD Green Program provides educational support for men and women behind and beyond the walls of our prisons and jails across the country. To get more information about the PD Green Program, you can reach us at pdgreenprogram.org. That's P-E-T-E-Y-G-R-E-E-N-E program.org. If you want to be a guest on the Looking Forward Show, it's really simple. All you need to do is send us an email at lookingforwardshow at gmail.com. The Looking Forward Show is looking for you. If you have a story to tell and you've been justice impacted, or if you're doing work in the criminal justice sector and want to share the greatness of your organization, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit entity, please reach out to us. Give us a shout out at lookingforward at gmail.com and we'll get you scheduled for one of our upcoming shows. You can also find The Looking Forward Show on our YouTube channel, The Looking Forward Show.